This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm super excited. If I sound excited, it's because I really am. It's Jason Del Rey, who I've been following for many years as a journalist and his podcast, and he's out with a new book. Jason has been a business journalist for 15 years and has covered Amazon, Walmart, and the e-commerce industry for the last decade. His new book is called Winner Sells All and will be published on June 20. And it chronicles the Amazon and Walmart rivalry and Walmart's attempts to reinvent itself over the past decade. Delray was also the host of a fantastic podcast series called Land of the Giants, which was about Amazon and was also the host of the Code Commerce live journalism event series. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks so much for having me, Kiri. Yeah, like I said, I've followed your work for many years and thrilled to read the book and talk about some of these topics with you. Sometimes being a podcast host has some real perks. So, <laughs> Oh, I appreciate that. You're too kind. So I want to start with just reading a quote from the book towards the end where you say, I don't remember exactly when the pleadings started, but I remember the shock with which I received them. From small Amazon sellers to big brands that were sick of the one-sidedness of doing business with Amazon to government insiders who feared Amazon's growing power but didn't trust that regulators or lawmakers either had the will or legal grounds to curb it. When will Walmart step up its game and provide a viable alternative to the Jeff Bezos empire? Walmart, the main street killer. Walmart, the union-busting bully. Walmart, the e-commerce laughingstock. Now being asked to be Walmart, the savior. And that to me was sort of emblematic of the whole story and something that I have experienced as a partner to brands who sell on one or both marketplaces is a desperate desire for more competition in the e-commerce marketplace space. Absolutely. So with that backdrop, yeah, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you came to work on this huge project. Yeah, so a couple of reasons. I mean, to start, maybe like many journalists, I always did want to write a book if I felt like I was the best person to write that book. And there are a lot of great journalists covering e-commerce, a lot of great journalists covering retail. There have been few that have paid close attention to both Amazon and Walmart in a deep journalistic way over the past decade. And so I saw that as sort of an advantage. I also thought, you know, while there have been great books about Amazon, you know, a bunch about doing business with Amazon, also from journalists like Brad Stone, going deep inside the rivalry between the two was not something that I had come across. And just lastly, I think for as powerful as Walmart is and important, you know, as Walmart is, I still think the company is kind of undercover today. And I get it, like Amazon to a lot of people is sexier, but there hadn't been a really well-read, well-done Walmart-focused book in about, I mean, almost two decades. I'm thinking of one called The Walmart Effect, which I believe was published in 2006 
I don't think the word Amazon was mentioned in that book, which is kind of, you know, people are going to say similar things about my book, I'm sure a decade from now that I didn't mention, I don't know which company it'll be. But for those reasons, I just thought this was an important story to tell that I could still tell very well. And I also thought as the two largest employers outside of the US government in this country, at least, you know, these companies matter to a lot of people and the public should know how they operate, what their ambitions are, and what might be coming next. Yeah, absolutely. And you do reference Brad Stone's, a couple of his books in yours. And I think a lot of people that listen to this show will have poured over those two books. It is a great sort of telling of a story that was unfolding in parallel, but like you said, was not really covered in much detail. Actually, that's a good segue into one of my questions here, which was you spoke with Walmart CEO Doug McMillan directly for the book and also a number of Amazon executives and other Walmart executives too. I think that you know better than almost anyone that Amazon has a certain reputation amongst reporters for their PR tactics and generally quite guarded about a lot of topics. And I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, how does that affect what we read in the media and do you think it sort of backfires on Amazon sometimes? You know, (laughs) it's a great question. And it's something obviously I've thought about a lot over the years, you know, having to deal or interact with the company on a mostly a daily basis for 10 years. There's a lot of gray hairs on my head and I'm not going to blame my wife and kids for most of them. Did you get a gray hair from asking what you opened the book, asking Jeff Bezos what he's wearing, which I I did. (laughs) I did. Oh, you read the prologue. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. I told that story a little bit over the years at some of my events. I definitely was thought it backfired and maybe it did. As you'll read, if you read the prologue, he kind of walked away when I asked it and then came back and we had a nice little discussion about my outfit as well. But anyway, probably some gray hairs from that. And that was when I was about seven years younger than I am now. So listen, Amazon, they have their strategy more or less, which is we're going to be very guarded. We're going to only tell you what we want to tell you. And what we want to tell you is not a lot. And for a lot of years, it was kind of we're going to let our services and our gadgets and our customer loyalty speak for itself. And so, you know, my early years covering the company, I probably would get an advanced look on a bunch of announcements and, you know, I'd come in for some interviews, but really still pretty guarded. As I started covering more stuff they weren't fond of. So labor issues, you know, what we've talked about a lot and you talk about all the time and write on fantastically, which is sort of how brands and other quote unquote partners have to work with them, you know, the downsides of working with Amazon, the challenges. As I started to cover some of that stuff, along with launches and earnings, you know, it seemed like they shut me out a little more and I got fewer, you know, advanced looks at announcements. And so how does that affect how does that affect what the public reads? Listen, I think it's really tough to think of the people you're talking to as <laughs> humans who have normal everyday lives and not just, you know, a company spokesperson or just an executive, if you don't get to talk to them much, if at all, and your one time talking to them is, you know, once every four years, and they're reading off 
you know, the bullet points that were drilled into their head for two hours the night before by, you know, a well-meaning spokesperson, but, you know, someone doing what Amazon execs tell them their job is. So, And is that a contrast to your interactions with Walmart? Do they behave a little bit differently? Listen, I think they have a reputation for being rather guarded as well. I do think in the digital space, though, they've recognized over time, whether they admit it or not, that they are kind of an underdog. And so I think there's historically been, when talking about digital businesses, more of a willingness to speak and open up slightly more. I'd say for the book, Walmart gave me access. And when I say access, I mean, not a ton of time, but interviews with basically their entire C-level. So you mentioned Doug McMillan, who I met with for 90 minutes in Bentonville, Arkansas. It's a lot shorter than the week I pitched to the company that I wanted to spend with him. But 90 minutes, I was still, you know, I think we covered a lot of ground. And then also US CEO, international CEO, Sam's Club CEO. So I think they want to tell their story. I think they're proud of some of their successes over the years in reinventing themselves. I think Doug McMillan has been a, you know, I think he's been a really good ambassador for that company. And while he's protective of their reputation and thinks they're still misunderstood in a lot of ways, I think more so than a lot of past CEOs at Walmart, he would acknowledge where they have a lot of work to do. And maybe I've strayed a little bit from your original question, <laughs> but I think they're still a guarded company. But I think in discussing, you know, innovation and digital things, I think they've tried to open up a little more than they have historically. Yeah, that's great. So there's a lot of battlegrounds that you cover in the book. So they're forays into healthcare, labor relations, they're responses to COVID and all of these instances where they've gone head to head, maybe at different times. And one battleground that didn't make it into the book was each retailer's advertising business, which is for both of them, very profitable, growing very quickly. And I was curious about, you know, what other battlegrounds are unfolding that didn't make it into the book. And then also specifically about retail media too. Sure. So the inherent challenge of chronicling a rivalry that has gone on for decades, but that has also not ended, is that there are going to be new businesses and events and major happenings that are going to continue to happen. And as the author of this book, I just kind of, I have to live with that. I made the choice to write this book in the manner I did. And, you know, it's one challenge I knew would be there. More specifically, though, to the advertising businesses, as you know, I do mention them in the back half of the book. There's not a chapter about retail media. You're right. When I started reporting this book about three years ago, Amazon obviously had a big advertising business by then already. Walmart did not. And so, you know, at that point early on, I'm mapping out chapters and topics and trying to the best of my ability, look forward at, you know, what might come up. And so it's just, you know, I mention it, it's important. I try to get across that these are still relatively young businesses, especially at Walmart and a piece of the battleground going forward, but just more so the timing of the book and yeah. how far along I was by the time Walmart really started picking it up in that space, just made it so that it was not something that I went deep in. One side note, I will say, you know, if people do want to read a deep piece about Amazon's 
advertising business as well, and all the pros and cons of it for consumers and brands alike. I wrote a piece in November for Recode at Vox.com that sort of goes deep inside in a journalistic way. And so if you search Amazon ads business and Vox with a V on Google, you'll find that piece. To your your question about what battlegrounds I, you know, other ones I didn't get to, I'd say the major one that I candidly am disappointed I couldn't get to in this book was the battleground in India between these Mm. companies. And again, it's something I mentioned in passing the Amazon Flipkart battle. Of course, Walmart bought a majority stake in Flipkart back in 2018. And it's an important market for both companies. The challenge there was, again, my original plan was to have a chapter on it. And then as time constraints got to me and the book was taking longer, I decided that to write that chapter with the original reporting that I'd be proud of. I would just need a lot more time than I had when I got to it. You know, Brad Stone, we mentioned Brad Stone. I talked to him early on in this process and he said to me something along the lines of, you need to remember that this isn't the best possible book you could ever write. It is the best possible book you can write within the time constraints your publisher mm-hmm. has set, within the time constraints that, you know, your personal life, you know, places on you. And I kind of like shrugged it off when he first told me like, no, I'm writing like the best book I possibly can. And then, you know, as I got deep in it, especially during the pandemic, you know, I realized there were going to be sacrifices and stuff I wasn't going to be 100% thrilled with. And not getting to tell that in a deep way was one. That said, Brad's last book, Amazon Unbound, goes inside in a really good way. And then an India-based journalist has written a book about Flipkart came out a few years ago called Big Billion Startup that I thought was well done as well. So maybe I'll get to it in my sequel. But if not, those are two places listeners should look if they're interested in that market. That's great. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. It makes two things make a lot of sense. One is the stage of the evolution of that particular battleground around retail media. Amazon is, I don't know, depends who you ask, 10 years ahead of Walmart with retail media It's, again, just something I hear from brands a lot is the desire for meaningful competition and catching up. And Amazon is truly leaps and bounds ahead of anyone there. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you can't cover everything. There are lots of little battles unfolding and it's a matter of timing and timeline, I guess. So thank you for sharing that. It would be a great follow-up. So another more recent event that unfolded after you finished the book was the digital native vertical brands that Walmart acquired after Mark Laurie joined after the acquisition of Jack.com. A number of those under first marks, Pervy, Moose Jaw, Mod Cloth, and I think that Eloquy was with Andy Dunn from Bonobos. All of those brands were very recently sold off. And Bonobos. And Bonobos was too, yes, at pretty steep discounts. Yeah. And as a corollary, Amazon also had a pretty thriving private label brands business back in the day. I I went and did some research of my own just back of the napkin kind of stuff, looked at 35 of these brands from Amazon that were active back in 2018 and some of which had seem to be doing quite well based on third-party research. 
And like the national brands were losing their minds about Amazon, you know, using their data to create these products and things like that. It seemed so unfair. It made it into that congressional inquiry. But basically they both failed with these internal brands that they had either invented or acquired. So I would love to get your perspective on why these two incredibly successful retailers had such a hard time building in-house brands. Yeah. So I'll start just by saying like each company at different scales has had some successes, right? In in-house brands. But are those mainly, you know, and the ones I'm thinking of are not ones you're buying because you feel love for the brand, you're buying it because it's the cheapest, you know, like it's commodity it's the cheapest like Amazon Amazon basics. Yeah. So yeah. Or like yeah. yeah, great value or yeah. So there is that. But when it comes to like brands that sort of mean something or make you feel something, they both failed. Yes, absolutely. I think there are a couple of things at play here. One is go back to each company's DNA, right? Like this is not historically the type of thing they've been good at, like brand building in a way that that is about more than just the lowest price, right? And so I think that's one thing I think is at play. I think specifically on the Walmart side and, you know, the digital native brands, I think there were a couple of things that happened. One is I really ever thought it could make sense, the strategy of buying a bunch of these, if there was really a big group of them and there were synergies that A, they could get from Walmart, right? From lean off of Walmart strengths or lean on Walmart strengths. And also like there could be savings in sort of back of the house operations. And A, we know for sure, you know, that the acquisition strategy as I'll lay out in my book, you know, never really got out of the first or second inning. And there are a variety of reasons for that. One is, you know, I have an anecdote in the book about Eloquy specifically. Eloquy, the business gets acquired and, you know, by Andy Dunn and others, and it gets inside the company and they realize, oh shoot, like we thought the financials were in this state and actually they're worse than we thought. And so you're a top executive of Walmart who's like operations focused and like you see like, wait, we were told this company is doing this and then they get in and actually they're in this state. Like your credibility is really, really hurt. You know, there are a lot of those instances where really talented digital focused folks coming into the company who have really, you know, have some great strengths, but operationally are just not hitting numbers consistently, or in this case, not aware of numbers at the level they thought they should be. And if you're a skeptical top executive at Walmart to begin with, and then, you know, these things go on, you're just, how are you going to trust or invest in these, you know, things that you've been skeptical about to begin with? So, you know, there's a lot more to, to those stories that hopefully your listeners will read in my book. But I think A, it comes down to DNA and then B, in some cases, you know, strategy and execution with the digital native brands where many of these were not ones that, or I shouldn't say many, a couple of them were not ones that you could ever see being sold in Walmart stores. And so looking for like, what is the synergy? And then B, just like, you know, not being in great shape financially, you know, is not going to make a lot of friends at the top of Walmart either. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Acadia, 
a trusted partner for challenger brands who are looking to make the best use of every marketing dollar, whether that is through SEO, performance media, Amazon and retail media, analytics, or organic social. To learn more, visit acadia.io. That's A-C-A-D-I-A dot I-O. So turning the tables onto Amazon here, and you describe Amazon's many initiatives in physical retail, so the fresh stores, bookstores, convenience stores, many of those initiatives have either shuttered or have stopped growing. And so what do you see as the common thread around Amazon's inability to get physical retail thriving? Yeah, you know, I'll just share one little anecdote. You know, my interview with Doug McMillan in Arkansas happened to come, I think it was a few days after Amazon had announced that they were shuttering the bookstore chain and also their a smaller chain called Four Star. And so I go into this meeting trying to get Doug McMillan's opinion and I was I don't know. Yeah, I'm looking for fun. So I was, you know, hoping he might have some. He's not the type to have snide remarks, but maybe something just saying like, yeah, retail is not that easy. And he sort of said that, but he was very matter of fact. and was just like, yeah, we try new things. And when they don't work, we move on. And so anyway, but listen, I think you could go to the DNA. It's really hard to expand out of your DNA, which is digital at Amazon. I think a bigger thing was they talk about only entering new spaces if they feel they have really strong differentiation. And I think in some of these physical settings, they did have differentiation, but I think the market told them maybe not compelling enough differentiation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of the Fire Phone way back yeah. in I think 2013 or 14, there was differentiation. There was some cool technology, but it was just not enough or what people really, enough people wanted, right? To pay the initial, it wasn't a low cost phone at first until they had a, no pun intended, fire sale on the devices. I think, you know, listen, I think a lot of people think a cart that will tell you what you're buying in real time and you could get your own, you know, aisle at checkout. Like I think that's cool to some people, but if prices are not great or this merchandise selection is not amazing, like is that enough to make me want to go there? Another issue I think they've had in physical retail is trying to use the physical retail too much to benefit the digital side of the business. So, you know, I'm thinking of when they bought Whole Foods and in a lot of places the store experience completely degraded in part because it's now become a warehouse, right? And so keeping the store customer as the focal point and maybe in the background, you know, getting advantages for your digital business may have been sort of a more successful strategy. All of that said, like, I don't count them out. Like, there's a lot of smart people there, still a lot of money (laughs) in those coffers. And I think the battle has been more uphill than they thought in physical retail. But even with the chain shutterings, like, I think they're going to make another big attempt to work it out. And whether it's just grocery or something else, we'll see. Yeah, it's just so interesting. These questions are just so emblematic of where one is weak, the other is strong. So the first half of the book certainly covers this real battle within Walmart around the innovators dilemma that if they actually start building a strong online business that that's going to cannibalize their very profitable super center sales which 
you describe it, it kind of does. And that, you know, sort of organizational incentives were working against them and all kinds of things going on there. So I'm curious with today, and this is very anecdotal, maybe you have a different view of this, but we sort of see a bit of a different dynamic emerging where a lot of Walmart Plus customers are more urban set who don't regularly visit super centers. And that I think that's a real sign of optimism for Walmart that they have tapped into this new audience that they wanted to for a long time. But then you cite a stat, I hadn't actually seen this before, that there's only 11 million Walmart Plus members compared to 170 million for Prime. Yeah, yeah. that number, I should have my book in front of me, but I don't. I'm forgetting what year that's from. So let's just say it could be outdated. How outdated, I'm not quite sure. I would hazard a guess like they're not anywhere close to the Prime member numbers. No, no, no. The question really is like, how much do you think going forward, Walmart Plus will be part of the future of Walmart as opposed to you know continuing to rely on the super center model? So I'll tell you what Walmart CEO told me. We could discuss whether we believe it or, or not. <laughs> so I asked him basically a version of this question. And we were about maybe an hour into a 90-minute chat when Walmart Plus came up. And I think I have this quote in the book. He essentially says, hey, like Walmart Plus is like a thing we are doing and investing in, but it is not everything. And he was really trying to like set relatively conservative expectations, at least with me. And he said he's trying to do it with Wall Street as well for how much the success of Walmart in the future relies on Walmart Plus being successful. Now, is that because he really believes that the advertising business is going to be a huge one, the healthcare business is going to be a huge one, you know, and pick up business and it only needs to be a small business? Or, you know, is he seeing some stuff in the early data that has him nervous? I can't tell you. I can only tell you what he told me. I think they've done a pretty good job with it. I think one of the regrets of some folks who've worked there is like, should have come out a couple of years earlier. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are trying very hard <laughs> to get it out earlier. There are a lot yeah. of people trying very hard to get it out earlier. And, you know, there was also debates over what the messaging should be, right? So I think the messaging that Walmart Plus came out with was all about convenience. And I talked to some former executives who were like, man, like Amazon's convenient, Instacart's convenient. Like, why are we trying to sell the convenience battle? We should be selling like the savings, like because mm-hmm. our prices are already lower in many cases than a lot of our competitors. When you do this plus delivery, like you're saving tons. And I've seen over time, I've seen the messaging include that as well. But to answer your question, I have trouble seeing a future where the super center does not play an integral role in Walmart's success if the company continues to find success. I do think they need to figure out a way to carve off some meaningful percentage of prime customers. And I don't know if they'll say that on the record, but I think they recognize that as well. And they really have had an opening with some of Prime's struggles in the last couple of years. I still maintain, you know, the company, Amazon will not admit this, but I wrote a piece last year about how in a you know, many geographies around the country, two-day Prime was like, it literally does not exist anymore. And in other areas, absolutely, like including where I live, 
I now have more same day options than I ever did. I'm in suburban New Jersey. But there, I still keep in touch with these people all around the country who have said it has just disappeared. So I think Walmart has an opening. I think there's pretty good value in their program. For me, it's really like how sticky. I still think Prime is ridiculously sticky, even when people are disappointed. And so can they carve off, you know, 5, 10, 15% of, of Prime customers? I don't know the answer. I'm still skeptical just because historically, Prime members have been so loyal, but there is absolutely still an opening, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I've seen that as well, that the Walmart delivery is super fast because they're relying on the super centers for some of, at least some of those deliveries. So that is the surprise and the surprise ones, right? I think you mentioned to me before we chatted and I had the same experience of ordering something at walmart.com, expecting two or three day shipping and it arriving the same day. In my case, I think (laughs) in a plastic bag, which I think, I don't know how recent your experience was because mine was like a year ago and I was told they were going to move away from the plastic bags. But anyway, it is, as a tech company would say, it is a delightful customer experience. Definitely. Now, how sustainable is it? Like, I think it should, like, it is possible. I just, you know, I was born skeptical. So I guess, I'm, you know, I'd like to see it at scale. But when they nail it, like they really nail that convenience piece. So we'll see. I don't know. For a nerd like me in the retail space, like it's, it's a fun thing to continue to watch. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. So we talked about the innovators dilemma and Walmart grappling with that, you know, the kind of potential cannibalization of their profitable super centers. What do you think, so today Amazon's sort of the one being disrupted, not just by Walmart, but by other players like Instacart and more. What sort of innovators dilemma do you think they are facing? Yeah, I'll go back to the physical stores just because there's been a lot happening in that space recently. Listen, I think there's a fine line between leaning into your existing and historic advantages and strengths versus getting into a new business mainly to serve your old legacy business. And so I have a couple examples that come to mind. And I'll just quickly reference some anecdotes from my book related to Amazon and physical retail. So, you know, the bookstores, I talked to a lot of former employees of the bookstores who said, our main goal was not to sell great books or have a great book buying experience. (laughs) You might think that would be the case. It was to sign people up for free trials to Audible or Amazon Music or Kindle Unlimited, and to sell gadgets. And so this sort of, you know, this messaging to employees sometimes took a shady, like they responded to it in what was a somewhat shady matter in some cases. So you had instances in some East Coast bookstores where managers were essentially signing customers up for free trials without giving them the really the choice. They would just tell them, I'm signing you up for this. Or in some cases, I've been told, like not even tell customers. And so I think it's just like the digital DNA and like what the mission of those stores was, was not to have a great, I mean, physical experience. And so, <laughs> really? Yeah. And so, and that's one example. And then another one, just, I referenced this already, but you know, the experience inside of Whole Foods. And I think it's gotten better in some places, but walking in and 
you know, the delivery people are doing nothing wrong. They're told to pick off the shelves, right? Like, you know, it's not their problem, but like, yeah, who are you serving, right? Who are you serving and why? And so I think those are some of the most relevant examples right now. Yeah, that's great. Well, this interview is going to come out the week of your book launch. So where can people buy that book and continue to follow your work? Sure. So can buy that book at any major retailer, even the two I wrote about in this book. <laughs> There'll be an audio book with a really great narrator that I'm excited about. His name is not Jason Delray, thankfully. Oh, you didn't narrate it yourself? Oh. No, no. And I guess you got to draw the line somewhere. I was a little bummed at first, but then I was like, man, I don't have time for that. <laughs> Maybe the sequel. And also independent bookstores, bookshop. You could buy it on bookshop. On LinkedIn and Twitter, I also have links to a independent bookstore that I'm lucky enough to know the owners of. And they're selling signed copies if you get your orders in before June 6th. But since this is coming out June 20th, maybe too late for that. And my work, I'm full-time focused on launching this book right now, but I am debating taking a full-time job at another media company or going the solo path. I have a sub stack that you could subscribe to. If you search Jason Del Rey Substack or my current name of it is already shipped Substack, I plan to start doing some writing there. Of course, I could be bowled over with a great full-time job offer in the meantime, but I'll try to have something there to interest people by the time the book launches. Great. We'll link up to the book, your Substack, your Twitter and LinkedIn I see you sharing there pretty regularly as well. So yeah, I am. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I loved the book. Congratulations. And I think, you know, a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you for, you know, pouring all of that time and your expertise into it. No, I'm always impressed with your insights that you share. And so it was my pleasure to come on and chat with you for a bit. Thanks, Jason.